Welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Herald for February 23rd, Thursday. I'm Ann Coke Gare, your reader, and here is our first story. District settles suit for $125,000. Former Hempstead student alleged bullying led to sexual assault that school officials ignored by Elizabeth Kelsey. Dubuque Community Schools officials recently settled a lawsuit that claimed the school district's negligence allowed the sexual assault of a student in 2019. The family of the female student who previously attended Hempstead High School will receive $125,000 under the terms of the settlement to be paid by the district's insurance carrier, Employers Mutual Casualty Company. The family filed a lawsuit in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County in October of 2021, alleging that the negligence of the district officials allowed the student to be sexually assaulted on campus. School board members unanimously approved the settlement agreement at a recent meeting. The settlement agreement states that it is not an admission or concession that the family has, quote, any viable or meritorious claim, end quote, against the district or its representatives. The parties have entered into the settlement agreement and general release in good faith of the sole purpose of resolving the dispute, thus avoiding the burden, expense, delay, and uncertainties of litigation, end quote. The agreement states, under the terms of the agreement, the plaintiffs also promise not to file any further related complaints against the district. District spokesperson Mike Size wrote in an email to the Telegraph Herald on Wednesday that the matter has been resolved and the district has nothing additional to add. The agreement was signed by the former Hempstead student on January 13th. The Telegraph Herald does not identify victims of alleged sexual crimes. Nathan Rundy, one of the family's attorneys, told the Telegraph Herald via email Wednesday that the attorneys were, quote, unable to comment on the resolution of this case, end quote. The suit alleged that the female student routinely was bullied by a male student. In incidents that the school officials were notified, quote, on multiple occasions, end quote. The female and her parents asked the district to transfer her to another school, but the request was denied due to the female student's high absenteeism rate which the lawsuit states, quote, was directly related to harassment and bullying, quote, she faced. The lawsuit states that the bullying from the male student continued into another school year during which the family alleges that, quote, Hempstead and the Dubuque Community School District failed to prevent further contact between, end quote, the two students. Documents state that the male student sexually assaulted the female student on the Hempstead campus in 2019, which the female student immediately reported to her mother, school officials, and Dubuque police. Afterwards, she again requested a transfer to another school, which was granted. Attorneys for the district previously denied the allegations in court documents, acknowledging that the female student reported being sexually assaulted but denying the claims, quote, for lack of sufficient information, end quote, that the assault happened. 
Dubuque Police Department Lieutenant Brendan Welsh confirmed to the Telegraph Herald on Wednesday that the department's Criminal Investigations Division investigated an alleged sexual assault involving the female student at Hempstead in 2019. The case was presented to Dubuque County Attorney's Office, which was which declined to prosecute it. Next article, School District Eyes 92 Acres. Southwestern Wisconsin school district officials are considering the purchase of 92 acres adjacent to the high school. Southwestern officials say neighboring land would be set aside for future use by Grace Neeland. Hazel Green, Wisconsin. Southwestern Wisconsin school district officials will seek voter approval next week to purchase 92 acres of adjacent farmland for future growth. The district will host a meeting at 7 p.m. Monday, February 27th at the high school in Hazel Green to review the plans for the $1.29 million purchase. District residents then can weigh in on the proposal ahead of public vote that will be taken at the meeting, where a simple majority from voters will be needed to approve the purchase. If approved, the district would purchase the land with plans to retain about 22 acres directly west of the high school building and sell the remaining 70 to an area farmer or other interested party. While the district has no immediate plans for the 22 acres, officials expressed a desire to obtain the land to allow for future growth. Quote, we really don't want to be landlocked, end quote, said Superintendent John Costello. We aren't looking at any immediate needs for that space, but it's not too often that the land next door to you comes up for sale, end quote. Costello and other district officials floated several potential uses for the land, including as a potential site for a new elementary school if the district decides to build one in the future. The current elementary school was built in, 19, in the 1950s, Costello said. School board member Story Driesens said the land also potentially could work for a variety of other building or parking additions the district might want in the future, as well as a potential site for school bus storage. The district this week approved $900,000 purchase of eight school buses that the district will own and operate itself. That amount would be paid over 10 years with an estimated savings each year of $70,000 to $75,000 in comparison to the amount that would have been paid to continue to contact contract the service with an outside provider. If there's a need to store those buses in the future or have garage a garage for them for maintenance work, parentheses, that adjacent land, and parentheses, could be an ideal spot, end quote, Driesen said. The district already submitted the $1.29 million offer to close by April 15, contingent upon receiving voter approval Monday. The district will borrow the funds for the purchase and then pay off the lion's share with the funds received from the resale of the 70 acres. Online property records state the land is owned by Edelweiss Enterprises, LLC. Owner Kathy Roelli said she and her husband choose, chose to sell the land as they neared retirement age, and district officials reached out when they saw it was on the market. 
Costello said buying a smaller portion of the available acreage would have led to a higher per acre cost, so the district chose instead to purchase the full 92 acres and resell what it did not need. He said there is already a buyer lined up with several other interested parties if the sale file falls through. Quote, we could have purchased a smaller portion from the seller, but that was going to charge us $35,000 an acre, and it doesn't make sense to spend taxpayer money that way when we could buy it for $14,000 an acre and then sell around 70 acres to someone else, Costello said. No property tax increases are expected as a result of the purchase. District officials acknowledge that community members might have concerns about the timing of the purchase and its proximity to other high-dollar projects, such as the bus purchases and an impending $4 million ballot measure. If approved on the April 4th ballot, the $4 million would not go toward the land purchase, but instead toward covering standard operating and programming expenses over the next three school years. District officials previously cited rising inflation and stagnating state aid as the impetus for the that referendum, which just happened to align with when the adjacent land came for sale. Quote, if you're looking at it from afar, it's a lot. It's a large pill to swallow, end quote, school board president Jackie Burkett said. Quote, ideally, we would want to be doing all these things done at one time. No, but when you're set with certain timelines and they all end up at the same time frame, you have to act on it. Quote, the landowner wants to sell this property now, and it's now or never for the district, because as soon as it as soon as she starts accepting offers from other people, that land is going to be gone, end quote. If voters approve the land purchase on Monday, Burkett and other officials stress that there will be no immediate changes to the land. Board Secretary Larry Grant added that the district plans to allow the current renter of the 22 acres to continue to rent and farm the land in the meantime. Quote, when opportunity knocks for tomorrow's future growth, we'll look at those options, end quote, Grant said. But in terms of today, we don't have any immediate plans. So if this passes Monday, nothing will be changing on Tuesday or Wednesday. Next article, opening doors to offer more housing. Julianne Drager, resident at Francis Apartments, converted a second bedroom into an art studio. Purchase of the Francis Apartments at 1501 Jackson Street provides agency with more options by Joshua Irvine. Opening doors. Women, including those with children seeking shelter assistance, can contact Teresa Shelter at 563-690-0086 or visit the facility at 111 Bluff Street in Dubuque. Likely, many who have left abusive relationships, Julianne Drager left almost everything behind her home in Potosi, Wisconsin, her art supplies, even her oldest son. She spent years between the Dubuque Community YMCA, YWCA's domestic violence shelter, then the emergency and extended stay Teresa shelter operated by opening doors, and then the, at, then the nonprofit's transitional housing at Maria House. Then one day, 
a staff member at Opening Doors made her an offer. Out of the blue, they said, do you want to have an apartment? Drager said, and I said, yeah. Now 54, Drager is, by her estimate, the longest occupied member in opening door in the Opening Doors long-term supportive housing program at Francis Apartments, where clients pulled from Opening Doors emergency shelter and transitional housing live independently in rent-subsidized units with case management from agency staff as needed. The agency soon may expand that option to more women like Drager following the $250,000 purchase of the Francis Apartment Building at 1501 Jackson Street from Steeple Square at the beginning of the year. Opening Doors Executive Director Carol Gebhardt said the agency plans for all 12 units in the building to ultimately serve the program. Quote, our goal would be to have all of our apartments be opening door doors clients, Gebhardt said. Up to eight of the building's units already were available for use for the agency's permanent supportive housing program. Residents pay rent based on what they can afford and receive as, as needed support from case managers located at the adjacent Maria House. Drager works with a case manager twice a month who helps her budget who helps her to budget her food stamps and income from a part-time job and assists her when Drager who has fibromyalgia gets groceries from the food pantry. When she was diagnosed with breast cancer and stopped working while she received chemotherapy, the agency covered her rent entirely. Plans for opening doors to eventually open the 12,490-foot property dated to the beginning of the $15 million renovation of the Steeple Square campus. Opening doors contributed toward the cost of the renovation, though Gebert declined to say how much. Steeple Square Board President Judy Wolf said Steeple Square had to resolve its obligations under the federal and state tax credits the nonprofit used to fund the site's renovation before it could transfer the property to opening doors. Tax credits paid for 40% of the campus renovation, Wolf estimated. Quote, it was a logical move with Maria House next door, said Wolf. Francis Apartments location also puts tenants within walking distance of the Mar- Marita Thiessen Child Care Center and its Head Starts program, also located on the Steeple Square campus, as well as several stops on the city's jewel routes on Jackson and White Streets. Gebert said the agency would not displace existing tenants paying market rate and would fill units depending on how its cli- on its clients' needs. The option to live To live independently, Drager said, has opened up her life. She set up an art studio in the spare bedroom and now is working with Iowa Vocational Rehabilitation Services to market and sell her art. While physically she is still recovering from chemotherapy, she said she feels stronger than she has before. She can always find something to be happy about, and she hopes other women in similar situations can have that chance. Quote, I didn't think I could ever have this, end quote, she said. Quote, and through this program, I do, end quote. Joshua Irvine is a reporter for America Corps 
um, an AmeriCorps member and writes about issues related to poverty in the tri-state area for the Telegraph Herald. East Butte Council OK's water service study gets update on fire truck measure. Study will evaluate the water network in the area by Elizabeth Kelsey. East Dubuque, Illinois. The city of East Dubuque will study the water distribution system in the flats with an eye toward mitigating water service issues. City council members this week unanimously approved a professional service agreement with WHKS and company for water services study in the sewers lower in the city's lower neighborhoods adjacent to the Mississippi River. Costs for the study, which will, quote, evaluate the water network in the area, end quote, and provide a report summarizing proposed improvements are estimated at $12,000, according to council documents. City manager Loris Herrig said the city for years has struggled with water service to the flats due to in part, to aging infrastructure with inadequate capacity. Quote, when we flush hydrants or when we have a water main break in that area, the pressure drops tremendously, end quote, he said. Last year, the city completed a water main replacement project along DeSoto Avenue in the Flats. Herrig described that project as a, quote, tremendous upgrade, end quote, and the first step to addressing water service issues in that area. He said the new study will help city officials identify areas of particular concern, including pipes with calcification buildup. City officials hope to have initial results from the study by late spring, at which time the city officials can decide on first steps for replacement of the infrastructure. Updating the entire water system in that area, which Herrig estimates serves about 200 customers, could take 5 to 10 years and cost millions of dollars. Council member Jeff Bergmeyer said after the meeting that repairs to the water infrastructure in the flats area are much needed and the study is a wise investment to help the city begin the process. Quote, I've been hearing about water issues down there ever since I've been on the council, so it definitely needs to be improved, end quote, he said. Quote, I think the people down there deserve to have proper flow of water, end quote. Dubuque Church to host drive through food pantry. Church of the Resurrection in Dubuque will host a free drive through pantry this weekend. The event will begin at 8.30 a.m. Saturday, February 25th in the church parking lot, 4300 Asbury Road. Volunteers will direct vehicles where to line up and assign numbers to order the vehicles. Participants will stay in their vehicles, and volunteers will load boxes of food into vehicles. The event will continue until 10 a.m. or until the food is gone. Officials for Dubuque Nonprofit Agency say aid funding nearly exhausted amid growing need. Leaders by Joshua Irvine. Leaders of a local nonprofit Providing rent and utility assistance say they will soon exhaust their funds amid a growing demand for aid. People in need, officials said the volunteer-run aid agency has only $8,834 left in its checking account as of Friday amid historically high demand for its services. Multiple members estimated the agency has a matter of weeks before it exhausts the remaining funds. 
quote, we're kind of in a tight spot right now, and we're trying to let the community know about it, end quote, said President Tom Stovall. Local churches and social service agencies refer prospective clients to people in need for a variety of financial needs, principally unpaid rent and utility costs, but also expenses such as outstanding medical debt. The number of requests and the amount paid out by the agency has grown steadily over the past several years. Per the nonprofit's annual report, people in need assisted 109 households in 2022, 56% more than in 2021, and issued $61,511 in assistance, 64% more than the year before. Multiple individuals connected with people in need attributed the rise in demand for not the nonprofit services to a decline in private grant funding and government spending on rental assistance. Kathy McCloy, Projects for Assistance in Transition from Homelessness Coordinator for Hillcrest Family Services, said the agency has relied on people in need to support its clients as its own grant funding for rental assistance has dried up. While Hillcrest has had at one point received some $40,000 in grants from area foundations for rental assistance, the agency currently is meeting out funds from a single $5,000 grant award awarded in November. Quote, that fairly, that's fairly typical of the organizations we partner with, end quote, McCloy said. The funds are definitely significantly lower than the need. Expenses for people in need climbed aggressively beginning late last year, with the number of households assisted, assisted jumping from single digits in October to 18 in November, and then 27 in December with $11,895 in assistance distributed in the last month of the year. In January, the fund dispersed $18,393 to 36 households, almost as much as the agency spent over the entire entirety of 2020, according to Stovall. In 2022, the agency raised $33,293, a third of which came from individual comp contributions. Treasurer Becky Jenkins said the f that fell within the agency's usual haul. Much of the agency's funding over the past two years came from a single $80,000 donation the agency received in 2021. Without that single donation, we wouldn't have been able to help nearly as many people, Jenkins said. After receiving the donation, the agency increased its financial support limit from $250 to $750 per household. This week, the agency re reduced it back to $250. But with rising rental and utility costs... Jenkins said that $250 will be much less effective than it was two years ago. We have the money, we're happy, we ha we're happy to give it, but the money doesn't go as far, Jenkins said. Other view. Balloons have long, balloons have long uneven history by Arthur Sear for, for the Telegraph Herald. The red balloon, is the title of a classic popular film from France that can serve as a metaphor for the alleged Chinese balloon menace. The whimsical fan 
fantasy of a boy and his balloon appeals to our need for companionship and our urge to escape routine existence, a desire hardly limited to children. The film appeared in 1956 during constant government instability in France. The previous decade witnessed stunning military defeat by Nazi Germany, then four years of humiliating, brutal occupation. The appeal of escapist fantasy in those circumstances is fully understandable. Sudden media obsession with Beijing balloons is not fantasy, but combined with occasional professional reporting, an opportunity for stratospheric speculation and making money. Facts as opposed to speculation, including the violation of North America airspace by a sizable lighter-than-aircraft from China. The vessel was about as large as a small car, but what distinctive special intel could be gathered by such primitive means? After drifting across the United States, military officers under orders from President Biden terminated the balloon's leisurely flight. A state-of-the-art F-22 jet fighter shot down the balloon off the coast of South Carolina. Now recalibrated, surveillance tools seek out balloons. One shot down in Alaska likely was a project of balloon hobbyists in Illinois. Predictably, Beijing has vocally protested the military response to the incident. The official explanation is that the craft was pursuing an innocent meteorological mission and blew off course. To be sure, balloons have have a long though uneven history of military uses. These include surveillance and gathering terrain information, useful in making maps and aerial attack. Late in the 18th century in France, entrepreneurial brothers Joseph Michael and Jacques Etienne Montogolifer developed a working balloon, and in 1783, there was an, a first documented human ascent in a piloted lighter-than-aircraft. The Montagolifer family was in the paper business, and the new invention proved extremely useful in map-making, along with providing pub- publicity that could only aid profits. Six years later, the French Revolution began. This ongoing conflict brought the first recorded use of balloons for military purposes, primarily tracking enemy operations. The United States Civil War of 1861 to 1865 brought significant expansion of balloons used for military missions. President Abraham Lincoln demonstrated relentless interest in exploiting existing technologies, notably the railroad and the telegraph and developing new ones. Better firearms were a constant preoccupation. Lincoln is the only U.S. president to hold a patent. Patent number 6,469 issued in 1849 for a device to lift boats over river obstructions. The device was never manufactured. Professor Thaddeus Lowe, an inventor, An inventor of the time persuaded President Lincoln to implement a military balloon program. His presentation included describing by telegraph the view of Washington, D.C. from a balloon. Lincoln created the Union Army Balloon Corps in 1861, 
with Lowe in charge. Opposition from traditional officers forced disbanding the Corps two years later. In 1899 and 1907, disarmament conferences convened at the Hogue Hogue in Netherlands. Balloons were included. There was no mention of airplanes. Balloons were used for both offensive and defense in both World War I and World War II and were a focus of planning between the wars but quickly became marginal. Uncertainty clouds Beijing balloon efforts. Beneath ubiquitous president for life Jinping, China is now in economic and social turmoil. The odd balloons may be one indicator of this. Above all, our leaders and the rest of us must remain firmly grounded. Avoid fantasies. Letters to the Editor Girls Wrestling Needs Different Venue by Brody Schmidt The Iowa High School Athletic Association should be commended for sanctioning girls wrestling as it is officially recognized and offered by the Iowa High School Girls Athletic Union. This act was met with overwhelming support by wrestlers and their fans. More than 2,300 girls wrestled in Iowa this year, doubling the amount from last season. Those wrestlers are from over a 100 schools in Iowa, each with their own fan base. However, IHSSA underestimated these women's impact on their communities and on wrestling as a whole. With the Iowa Girls State Tournament that recently took place, they turned away spectators due to the capacity of the arena. With the sport of girls wrestling just starting and growing a huge fan base, they will amass more participants and schools into their mix. Moving forward with the moving forward, the IHSSA needs to acquire a larger stadium to hold the state tournament next year, so this problem does not arise. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Ann Coke Gare. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Ursula A. Onken Ursula A. Onken, 84, of Dubuque, Iowa, passed away on Friday, February 17, 2023, at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City, Iowa, with her loving husband by her side. According to Ursula's wishes, no public visitation or service will be held. Leonard Funeral and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, is assisting the family. Ursula was born on January 30th, 1939 in Wilhelmshaven, Germany, daughter of Martin and Christine Egricks Yuken. She was united in marriage to the love of her life, John Onken, on November 10th, 1961 in Wilhelmshaven. Ursula lost her father during World War II. Hoping to improve their circumstances and already having a relative in Dubuque, Ursula's mother decided the United States may provide a better life. 
Despite making every effort, her mother's health could never quite agree with the climate changes in the Midwest. So after two years, a return to Germany was made. Ursula never forgot her time here. So then in 1964, after lengthy discussions about the life in America, she and still having a relative in Dubuque, Ursula and John decided to leave Germany behind and come to America. During her life, Ursula did office work in Germany, and after immigrating to the United States, Ursula was a stay-at-home mom with her two boys until 1980 when she returned to work at First National Bank. Ursula loved her job at the bank, and to many of those who did their business there became known as Ursula at the bank. Her upbeat, positive attitude and personality made the customers whom she truly enjoyed helping with their banking needs, feel right at home. Although the bank was to undergo several name changes, Ursula remained at the same branch until her retirement in 1999. Ursula was the definition of what a wife and mother should be. It was a rare day that that a home-cooked meal was not provided. The house cleaned or whatever needs the family had was being met. A person of many talents, Ursula was bilingual, was a second-to-none cook and baker, and could crochet like nobody's business. She was also very proud of her work with others at St. Matthew Lutheran Church Prayer Shawl, making items for those in need and for those that simply needed a warm-up. Her caring heart and warming smile will truly be missed. To those those left to cherish Ursula's memory is her husband of 61 years, John, sons Mike, Jennifer, and Rob, Becky, and grandchildren Michaela, Ryan, Emily, Charlie, Joey, and Rosalie. She was preceded in death by her parents, Martin and Christine. Memorials may be given in Ursula's name to the Dubuque Regional Humane Society and St. Matthew's Lutheran Church in Dubuque. Jeffrey Hintzman. Jeffrey Hintzman, 49 of Dubuque, died on Tuesday, February 21, 2023. Visitation will be held from 10 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. Saturday, February 25th at Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2659 John F. Kennedy Road, where services will follow at 1 p.m. Carl R. Noel Carl R. Noel, 93 of Dubuque, died on Wednesday, February 22, 2023. Arrangements are pending. Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Westview Funeral Home and Cremation, 2569 John F. Kennedy Road is assisting the family. William Retta, Galena, Illinois. William Retta, 90, of Galena, died on Wednesday, February 22, 2023. Services will be held at noon, Saturday, March 4th, at Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena. Larry J. Bradley, Sr., Larry J. Bradley Sr., 81 of Dubuque, died on Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Visitation will be held from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Tuesday, February 28th at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, where services will follow. Arliss 
J. Case, Lancaster, Wisconsin. Arliss J. Case, 87, of Lancaster, died on Saturday, February 18th, 2023. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 28th, and from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 1st, at Martin Schwartz Funeral Home in Lancaster, where services will follow. Burial will be in Hillsdale Cemetery in Lancaster. Funeral Services, Nicholas A. Bainbridge, Bainbridge, Hanover, Illinois. Visitation 4 to 7 p.m., Friday, February 24th. Law Jones Funeral Home, Hanover. Service at 10 a.m., Saturday, February 25th. St. John the Evangelist Catholic Church, Hanover. Louis Bessler, Worthington, Iowa. Visitation 9 to 10.30 a.m., Friday, February 24th. St. Saint pa- Paul Catholic Church, Worthington, Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m., Friday at the church. Norma D. Egbert, Hanover, Illinois, Graveside Service, 1 p.m., Thursday, April 20th, Log Church Cemetery, Elizabeth. Betty L. Fosdick, Savannah, Illinois, Visitation 9 to 11 a.m., Saturday, March 4th, St. Peter Lutheran Church, Savannah. Service, 11 a.m., March 4th, at the church. Charles F. Gaffney, Manchester, Iowa. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m., Friday, February 24th. Leonard Mueller Funeral Home, Manchester, and from 9.30 to 10.15 a.m., Saturday, February 25th, St. Mary Catholic Church, Manchester. Mass of Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m., Saturday at the church. Carl I'm sorry, Carol A. Gullock, Dubuque, Visitation 9.15 to 10.15 a.m., Saturday, February 25th, St. Raphael Catholic Cathedral, Mass of Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m., Saturday at the Cathedral, Joshua Holtz, Manchester, Iowa, Celebration of Life, 2 to 5 p.m., Saturday, March 25th, Delaware County Community Center, Manchester, Linda J. Johns, Dubuque, Visitation, 9.45 to 10.45 a.m., Saturday, March 4th, Egelhoff, Segret, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2659 John F. Kennedy Road, Service, 11 a.m., March 4th, at the Funeral Home. Carla D. Kipper, East Dubuque, Illinois, Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m., with a rosary service at 3.30 p.m., Friday, February 24th. Miller Funeral Home, East Dubuque, and from 9.30 to 10.15 a.m. Saturday, February 25th, St. Mary Catholic Church, East Dubuque, Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. Saturday at the church. Gay Nell Camerud, Dubuque, Celebration of Life, 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 24th, Mueller Memorial Chapel, Linwood County Cemetery. Richard A. Liebfried, Dubuque, Visitation 9 to 10.45 a.m. today, Church of the Resurrection, Mass of Christian Burial, 11 a.m. today at the church. John J. O'Connell, Jr., Dubuque, Visitation 6 to 8 p.m. Tuesday, February 28th, Egelhoff Siegert and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2659 John F. Kennedy Road, Service, 
10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 1st, Church of the Resurrection. Thelma J. Roberts, Asbury, Iowa, Visitation 9 to 10.30 a.m., Friday, February 24th, St. Raphael Cathedral, Mass of Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m., Friday at the Cathedral. Bernard W. Schroeder, Dubuque, Service 11 a.m., Saturday, February 25th, Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of Dubuque, Henry Wilhelm, Dyersville, Iowa, Visitation 9 to 10 a.m. today, Kramer Funeral Home, Dyersville, Mass of Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. today, St. Francis Xavier Basilica, Dyersville. Flights canceled, roads closed as storm wallops U.S. Few places are untouched by the wild weather. A brutal winter storm knocked out power in California and the Midwest, closed interstate highways from Arizona to Wyoming, and prompted more than 1,500 flight cancellations Wednesday, and the worst won't be over for several days. Few places were untouched by the wild weather, some at the opposite extreme. Long-standing record highs were broken in cities in the Midwest, mid-Atlantic, and southeast. The wintry mix was hitting hard in the northern U.S., closing schools, offices, even shutting down the Minnesota legislature. Travel was difficult. Weather contributed to more than 1,500 U.S. flight cancellations, according to the tracking service Flight Aware. More than 400 of those were due to arrive or depart from the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. Another 5,000-plus flights were delayed across the country. At Denver International Airport, Taylor Dotson, her husband Reggie, and their four-year-old daughter, Reagan, faced a two-hour flight delay to Nashville on their way home to Belvedere, Tennessee. They braved slick roads and arrived early in case of long lines at the airport security, but the weather delay proved unavoidable and ironic. Reggie Dotson was in Denver to interview for a job as an airplane pilot. I think that's kind of funny that we're experienced these types of delays when that's what he's looking into getting into now as a career, Taylor Dodson said. The roads were just as bad. Wyoming's Transportation Department posted on social media that roads across much of the southern part of the state were, quote, impassable, with blowing snow and reduced to poor visibility into Friday. It wasn't much better in neighboring states. Sometimes it's physically impossible to keep up with Mother Nature, said North Dakota Highway Patrol Sergeant Wade Cadmus. He he warned those who venture out to dress appropriately. Often when motorists get stranded, they don't have a winter jacket. They might be wearing shorts and flip-flops, just thinking they're going to get from point A to point B, and nothing is going wrong, he said. Kelly Cross has spent his entire 60 years in South Dakota, but even he tires of the wintry weather that often spills well into spring. Besides the regular snow shoveling at his Pierre store, K&C Westernware, he's gone through pounds of salt to keep the walkway clear. The company of his terrier, Penny, makes the slog to work more tolerable. She comes with me every day, Cross said. Pacific Northwest, 
High winds and heavy snow in the Cascade Mountains prevented search teams from reaching the bodies of three climbers killed in an avalanche on Washington's Kolchuk Peak over the weekend. Two experts from the northwest of Avalanche Center were hiking to the scene Wednesday to determine if conditions might permit a recovery attempt later this week. Powerful winds were the biggest problem in California, toppling trees and power lines. By Wednesday afternoon, more than 65,000 customers in the state were without electricity, according to Power Outage U.S. A one-year-old child was critically injured when a redwood crashed into the home in Boulder Creek, a community in the Santa Cruz Mountains, south of San Francisco, KTVU reported. A blizzard warning was issued for the mountains of Los Angeles, Ventura, and Santa Barbara counties, effective from 4 a.m. today to 4 p.m. Saturday, the National Weather Service said. Quote, nearly the entire population of California will be able to see snow from some vantage point later this week if they look in the right direction, i.e. toward the highest hills in vicinity. UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain tweeted, A more than 200-mile stretch of Interstate 40 from central Arizona to New Mexico to the New Mexico line closed due to snow, ran and wind gusts up to 80 miles per hour. Thousands were without power in Arizona. In the northern U.S., a region accustomed to heavy snow, the snowfall could be significant. More than 18 inches could pile up in parts of Minnesota and Wisconsin, the National Weather Service said Wednesday evening. According to the Weather Service, the biggest snow event on record in the Twin Cities was 28.4 inches from October 31st through November 3rd, 1991. Temperatures could plunge as low as minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit today and to minus 25 Fahrenheit Friday in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Wind chills could fall into minus 50, said Nathan Rick, a meteorologist in Grand Forks. Wind gusts could reach 50 miles per hour in western and central Minnesota, resulting in, quote, significant blowing and drifting snow without, with whiteout conditions in open areas, end quote. The Weather Service said. Pope at Lent's start, end dictatorship of superficial needs by Francis D'Amillo, Rome. Pope Francis ushered in the annual Christian Lenten period of sacrifice and reflection by encouraging people on Ash Wednesday to cast off what he called the dictatorship of heavy agendas and superficial needs. Due to a knee problem, Francis didn't join in the traditional Ash Wednesday procession between two churches on Rome's Aventine Hill. Instead, he presided over an early evening mass after the procession in Hilltop, St. Sabine Basilica, where faithful gathered for the Catholic Church's ritual distribution of ashes that are meant as a reminders of people's mortality. Lent marks a period that can include fasting, prayer, and works of charity in preparation for Easter, which is which this year is on April 9th. During the service, ashes were sprinkled on Francis' bowed head while a choir sang hymns. 
Lent is the time to, quote, drop the pretense of being self-sufficient and the need to put ourselves at the center of things, to be the top of the class, to think that by our own abilities we can succeed in life and transform the world around us, end quote, the Pope said in his homily. Quote, the ashes we receive this evening tells us that every presumption of self-sufficiency is false and that self-adultery is destructive, imprisoning us in isolation and loneliness, end quote, he said. Instead, Lent services, quote, to remind ourselves that the world is bigger than our narrow personal needs and to rediscover the joy, not of accumulating material goods, but of caring for those who are poor and afflicted, end quote, Francis said. Quote, let us take stock of ourselves to free ourselves from the dictatorship of heavy schedules, crowded agendas, and superficial needs, and choose the things that truly matter, end quote, the pontiff said. In his homily, Francis circled back to an overarching theme of his nearly 10-year-old papacy, attention to the individuality of those in need, particularly the poor. Almsgiving is not a hasty gesture performed to ease our conscience, the Pope said. Rather, it is a way of touching the suffering of the poor with our own hands and heart. Holy Week services starting on April 2nd with Palm Sunday and including the traditional Way of the Cross procession at the Colosseum draw large crowds of pilgrims and tourists to Rome and the Vatican. Sports now. Telegraph Herald High School Athlete of the Week. Heath Poppy of Schulzburg. Schulzburg's Poppy joins a 1K Point Club by Shannon Mum. It has been a lifelong dream for Heath Poppy to reach the 1,000-point milestone, and the Schulzburg Jr. achieved it with his father, Pete, as his coach last Friday night against Potosi. Poppy, the Telegraph Herald Athlete of the Week, needed 14 points to surpass the millennium mark, and he did so during the first half of play. He ended the game with 30 points, 7 rebounds, 4 steals, 3 assists, and 1 block. I was full of mixed emotions after I got it, Poppy said. I was excited, and then... They took a time out so I could be acknowledged, and the emotions definitely got to me. My dad has been coaching me since the third grade, so to do it with him by my side is something I will never forget. Poppy is the lone returning starter for the Miners, who finished the season with four wins last year. This season, he has helped lead Schulzberg to a current 10-14 record. Heath is really a jack-of-all-trades, Schulzberg coach Pete Poppy said. He's quite a leader, and everyone looks to him on both ends of the floor. He's a prime example of how, if you put in the work, good things happen. Heath Poppy has taken on the offensive load for the team and has scored 30 or more points in five of the last seven games. I know that I'm looked at to put this put up points this year, he said. When I'm being face guarded or doubled, then I have to be able to find that open guy. He's also averaging 9.7 rebounds per game, which leads the Six Rivers West Conference to go along with 21 points per game and 3.9 assists per game. 
Heath has worked so hard at his game that he has developed a strong skill set, Pete Poppy said. No matter what the defense tries to take away from him, he still finds a way to make something happen, either for himself or a teammate. Heath has one older brother who is a senior and two younger brothers in middle school who all play basketball. Heath is a great role model and as his Dad, I'm really proud of him, Pete said. His younger brothers are managers on the team, and they see what he does and the work he puts in. He always has a basketball in his hands. Heath Poppy, who's been playing AAU basketball since the third grade, said Friday night's game against Potosi was extra special to him. Quote, their player, Gavin Wonderland, who was also up for the Athlete of the Week, and I were teammates in AAU, and he got his eleven, his 1,000th point the same week I did, he said. It was pretty cool for him to be there when I scored mine. Heath said now that he has achieved the 1,000-point mark, he's setting his goals on becoming Schulzberg's all-time leading scorer. It's something to work toward, he said. Just as he succeeds on the basketball court, his worth ethic carries over into the classroom. He's a great student and has a good chance for being valedictorian next year, Pete Poppy said. He works just as hard as at academics as he does with his basketball. Even though I'm his dad, I still think he's the type of kid that every coach wants to have on their team. Amazon acquires health company One Medical. Associated Press, New York. Amazon said Wednesday it has closed its $3.9 billion acquisition of the primary care organization, One Medical. The e-commerce giant said the buoyant, the buyout, which was announced in July, is a key component of its growing healthcare business, which includes its online drugstore, Amazon Pharmacy, and a patient doctor messaging service called Amazon Clinic. One Medical, which was owned by San Francisco-based One Life Healthcare, Inc., has about 815,000 members and 214 medical offices in more than 20 markets. Its membership-based service offers virtual care as well as in-person visits. The two companies said Wednesday that for the first year, membership will be available to new U.S. customers for $144, a 20% discount intended to lure newer, new customers. The One Medical purchase is the first acquisition made under Amazon CEO Andy Jacey, who took over from founder Jeff Bezos in 2021 and sees healthcare as a growth opportunity for the company. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, and Coke Gare, thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Mm-hmm.